You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's conversation is with Father Wojciech Giertek, Professor of Moral Theology at the Angelicum in Rome, and, since 2005, the theologian of the Pontifical Household. We sat down with Father Giertek in the Gavin House Library to discuss his ministry at the Vatican and his own research and upbringing. Welcome to the Lumen Christi podcast. Thank you. My name is Mark Franzen. I'm the program coordinator at the Lumen Christi Institute. I'm here with Michael Bradley, my associate, who works on our events and communications. And we're honored to have as our conversation partner and guest today, Father Wojciech Giertek. I did my best there. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Dominican priest, professor at the Angelicum in Rome, and theologian to the Pontifical Household. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. Uh, And we thought we'd just ask you a few questions and and get to know you a bit. So I'll start with a question about your formation. During your years of seminary formation, the bishop of your province was um, someone very special. Did you have a relationship uh, with... Well, I was a young seminarian, but in in the Dominican Priory in Krakow, which is a very big institution Mm -hmm. in the local church in existence since the the 13th century, nonstop. And so, obviously, Cardinal Vetiwa had lots of contacts with our priory. He would regularly come about three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. But I was a seminarian, so I was the one who would bring in the soup in the refectory, and he would sit next to the prior and so on. So I'd never really had like a personal contact, but I've seen him often. I remember once walking after supper from the refectory to the chapel and seeing in the cloister, oh, he's there, he's talking to one of the fathers. Well, it was normal, you know, the bishop mm-hmm. came to have a conversation with uh, with one of the fathers. There's no reason to stop. Uh-huh. But I had no sort of direct intellectual contact with him, mm-hmm. neither as the Archbishop in Krakow, no sort of personal contact with him, nor later on in Rome. In Rome, I was also a young student. He was a pope. So at several occasions, I did have a chance to be close to him, to have a blessing or something, but mm-hmm. no really... No real sort of uh, personal friendship or so on. I'm too young for that. Sure, sure. To be a Pole in Rome at that time, was that give you a special well, I confidence? I was once after ordination doing my license. I was in St. Peter's Square on, I think on Easter Sunday with an American friend of mine. And seeing the crowds and, and John Paul II was beaming and so on. And... Uh, I said to my friend, Stalin asked the question, how many divisions does the Vatican have? Well, you have the divisions here. So this was a time of a certain triumphalism that I think John Paul II knew how to manage because he was an actor. And so he knew how to use the crowds, how to manage them. And he had a personal I think quality that some people in history have of attracting people to themselves. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't an egoist, so he could use that for the benefit of the gospel. Huh? Mm. 
sometimes priests want to be in the center of affairs and bring people to them and that's not enough uh, that's that's egoist whereas uh, john paul ii knew how to lead people to christ and use the talents of his personality and mm -hmm. that was certainly impressive but the first time i saw him was long before i entered the order this was in, in the uh, 1970s, in the first half of the 1970s. He came to Poznan where I was studying and there was a meeting at the diocesan uh, seminary. I was studying history at the university. And he was beaming. He was 50. <laughs> uh, first time I saw him. You know, mm -hmm. A very impressive personality. Yeah. Hmm. So he had that magnetism yeah, from a very yeah, early... Yeah, 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 this was evident then. Oh. <laughs> I'd like to ask you about your your role now as the papal theologian. I, I think a lot of people aren't even familiar with the office itself, and and when they hear the name, they're they're not quite sure what it means. Perhaps you could just describe your your duties in the office, what it's been like under Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and Pope Francis. Well, this is a very interesting question, and I certainly would be delighted to have an answer <laughs> for it. <laughs> <laughs> the office have has been in existence for eight centuries. And mm -hmm. there always has been the Dominican at the office. And it's the experience of the Holy See. It's good to have a Dominican, preferably a Thomist, uh, at hand. Uh, but uh, exactly what is the task? Well, it depends on the various popes, various situations. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was appointed under Benedict, I was paralyzed. Who am I in the face of the great Ratzinger, who's written enormous books? Mm -hmm. you know? Whereas Benedict didn't really need a theologian because what he had to say, he already said in his books. And I think his magisterium is more what he wrote in his books before he became Pope. Huh? I think there's only really one very important discourse that he said as a Pope that was on the continuity, hermeneutics of continuity in, in December 2005 and we're reading Vatican II. Whereas everything else was basically repetitive to what he had done before. Now, the office of the, of the theologian in past centuries, he had to do the censorship of all the books published in Rome. Well, ha happily, I don't have to do that. He had to preach conferences to the Roman Curia. Well, I'm not asked to do that. And in the procedure that when texts are being prepared, not by the Pope, but for the Pope, there are various speech writers before the Pope gets the final text. It has to be okayed by the papal theologian. <coughs> so I have to look at the text which is prepared for him and to see if that maybe there's something which is unclear, which could be misunderstood, could be maybe you know corrected and so on. So I'm a part of the procedure provided for the preparation of the discourses of the Holy Father. Well, Benedict didn't really need that because those who were writing the discourses were doing a lot of plagiarism and pulling <laughs> out texts of a certain Josef Ratzinger and mm -hmm. sneaking the, into the text of Benedict. And then under Francis, Francis wants everything to be very simple. Mm. He throws out two or three verbs, you know, and so the writers, they write something on it. Basically, the texts are correct, but then he reads only a half of it and rattles off on his own. So I don't bear responsibility for that. So strictly speaking, the reason why I am there and the main task uh, is minimal. 
But of course, I am there occasionally. They ask me for consultation on some issue. I get an envelope with a question, you know, and a file, you know, we'll look into it and, and, and give you your opinion. I'm the consultor of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. I'm the consultor of the Congregation of Saints. So there I get big files of the saints, big volumes mm -hmm. uh, of candidates for sanctity, and you have to read and see whether the virtues were heroic or not. Mm. By the time they arrived at that stage, normally it's clear that they were heroic anyway. But anyway, it has to be studied and so on. So I have various things that occasionally I'm asked also in Rome, some conferences here and there. But apart from that, I, I have free time for my own studies. And so my initial paralysis after my appointment, who am I? Huh? Well, over the years, I've read more. I've had more time to study. I've written a few books. Huh? So I feel more confident in the face of the uh, questions and, mm -hmm. and issues. And, and certainly what I must to do, I have the time and so on to look up and study. And, and So basically that is it. Well, I have to live in the Vatican as a prisoner of the Vatican because sometimes <laughs> these things are done <laughs> in the last moment. Mm -hmm. So I have to be available. But I have time for my teaching and occasionally I can sneak out for a conference here, there, somewhere, mm -hmm. like I'm here today. Well, we're certainly very grateful to... Uh, to have you here. Well, it's good also to sometimes to be somewhere else and see some good things happening in the world, you know. And so. Indeed. I might turn our, our discussion to theology and, and sort yeah. of the, the state of theology or the role theology is playing today. The Second Vatican Council called for a renewal of a moral theology rooted in Scripture and the Fathers and more closely bound up with dogmatic theology and with the mystery of Christ himself. Uh, a little over 50 years after the Council, how is Catholic moral theology doing in that task? I think that um, the Council, you've mentioned the certain things that the Council did say, but strictly speaking, the Council didn't give us a full program of renewal of moral theology. And before the Council, there were problems on questions of biblical history, how to combine the discoveries of archaeology with, with the reading of the scriptures and so on. Uh, the relationship of the church and the state, well, I mean, this is still with us. But these were issues which were, which were more uh, sort of vibrant. Whereas uh, the preparation of renewal of moral theology was not really addressed by Vatican II. There was a draft uh, document, the Ordine Morali, on the moral order which was prepared for the council. There was a long history of reading it, correcting it, amending it, changing the commissions, reading it again, amending it again. And mm -hmm. finally, they tore it up and threw it in a dustbin. And the council never gave us a document. In some sense, Veritati Splendor of John Paul II, many years later, fills in that lacuna. But the main crisis of the church today facing the world is in the field of moral theology. And it's not a question whether a particular act is sinful or not. But the question is how to locate the, the entire vision of Christian life uh, within the Christian kerygma, you know, within, within the preaching of Christ, and how to explain, how to show you know, the, the workings of Christ within our moral life, within our liberty, within our responsibility. In the face of challenges, which of course in history they've always there's always been an increase of new problems and now mm -hmm. with the velocity of changes in society you have new problems appearing constantly mm -hmm. but it's not a question of coming up with casuist answers for every new little problem that somewhere appears in the field of bioethics or, or somewhere else but it's more a question of how to 
have the whole vision of Christian life eh? and how to preach Christ in such a way to show the fruitfulness of the grace of Christ in life. Eh? This is what I try to convey mm -hmm. in my teaching in my books and I'll say partly tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, today <laughs> at, the, uh, at the conference. Eh? Sure. But I think this is the main issue. Mm -hmm. And after Vatican II, there was a, uh, the joy of, of reforming everything. Eh? And in the field of moral theology, there was a lot of searches which were misguided. And then John Paul II, with his great authority, gave a whole series of encyclicals showed, showing how to read Vatican II. So this hermeneutics of continuity was given by John Paul II, confirmed by Benedict. And John Paul II, certainly in the major encyclicals which touch moral issues, like Veritatis Splendor, with Fides et Ratio, and Evangelium Vitae, there was a direct reference to Aquinas. Whereas now there seems to be a horror of metaphysics, mm -hmm. a horror of speculative theology, a preference for storytelling, for being close, uh, for, for attracting people uh, by <coughs> using a simple language which reaches to the simple people. And I think very soon there will be a, a loud cry in the universal church screaming for speculative philosophy and theology. And I'm telling the rector of the Angelicum, who's Polish, and this is what we in the order have to prepare. We have to prepare an army of intellectuals capable of articulating the Christian view in the field of metaphysics, morals, economics, political science, uh, 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 constitutional law, uh, mm -hmm. pedagogics, psychology. Uh, in all these fields, certainly as a Dominican, uh, I can say that Aquinas has insights uh, which need to be developed, but insights which are very clear, uh, very, uh, very precise, and at the same time located in a theological vision. Unfortunately, neo-Thomism was philosophical, and they didn't quite see the theological dimension of Aquinas. And so it was more read more as a sort of a, a supposedly coherent, self-explanatory, obvious exposition, which, uh, which you have to accept because it's logical, because the, the syllogism functions and so on. Whereas if you don't accept it, well, you're just obnoxious. You know? mm -hmm. This was the sort of attitude. Huh? Whereas I think Aquinas and his, the value of Vatican II, which has shown us that we have to view nature within the entire divine project, which precedes the creation. As St. Paul says, God chose us before the creation of the world, before original sin, and, and the perspective of eschatology. And so the, the spiritual transformation of our being, but it doesn't weaken the mind, it sharpens the mind, it doesn't paralyze the mind. So we are fully entitled to address questions in the sciences and in metaphysics. And, and so, so we can have a speculative, both philosophical reflection and a reflection within theology to be able to arrive at a synthesis. But the world will be screaming for such a synthesis. Uh, mm. And we have to prepare that, and you here as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> prepare people competent enough to mm -hmm. be able to articulate this. Uh. And, and, and what, what is it that you see as um, missing today in that desire to receive a teaching that is simpler and speaks in the language that people are familiar with as opposed to 
say, a more comprehensive theological vision that, ha that, that transforms our language and transforms our thought. What, what is missing in, in the faithful or just the public? That I think in the trend after Vatican II, changing all the altars facing the people and so on, there was a mm -hmm. whole trend, be closer to the people. Huh? And I think the Pope is Francis is also saying this, be attentive to, to where the individual is and what are his problems. And, and, and sometimes people need uh, not only answers to questions, they need to be charmed or they need to be sort of shown some warmth and you know, they need to be hugged. You know. Okay, I mean, there is this dimension in the church's mm -hmm. mission and certainly the, uh, 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 the church has the mission of transmitting divine love uh, through human beings. So, so charity has to be real, mm -hmm. but it also has to be in truth. And the charity which is not in truth a love that is charming, but which is dismisses of truth, is not true love. And so, and ultimately, in a confused world, people need not only to be hugged, they need things to be explained. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to have convictions. And to have convictions, you have to know the principles. You have to see that they're correct. And now, when people are so lost in their moral disorder, then there is a tendency to escape from the truth because truth is demanding. And since truth is demanding, people then prefer to chicken out of truth <laughs> and then say, oh, it's all confusing, oh, it's all unprecise, you know, it's all complicated, I don't understand. But in the church, we need people who are formed in the great principles, even though we are still on the way to sanctity. And so the description of the fully sanctified human person that we find in Aquinas, a young seminarian studies this and he says, well, I don't feel this. <laughs> and he's right, he doesn't feel it because he's not yet at that stage. But it's good to clarify the mind, to have the principles in the mind. And in the past when there was a simple catechism, the catechism of Trent, which was addressed to him, uh, to, uh, to, to parish priests, but then uh, smaller catechisms were a diluted version of that. Uh, people received the basic truths which they learned off by heart as a child, and that carried them. Whereas now the idea that catechetical formation is you have to charm people. Huh? But you can charm six-year-olds by singing to them and, and, and telling them stories. But when they're eight, you know, they, they drop that because they're older now, you know. They need something more that they will learn off by heart that, that will carry them all their lives. Hmm. So I think this, this hunger for a clear speculative theology, uh, responding to questions and clarifying issues in all the other sciences, this is something that, that, that we have to offer the world. Mm -hmm. But at, at present, I'm seeing a certain dislike of this type of discourse. And the basic distinctions between nature and grace, the natural, the supernatural, and so on, uh, state of grace, state of sin, and so on. These are things which are, there is a certain reserve, you know. Yeah. But, but if you don't learn that, uh, then you're confused. So I think this mm -hmm. is a task in the church, you know, to, to bring it back in a, in a fresh way, but, uh, but in a true coherent way. There is a, it, it is correct that there are certain approaches of the, the um, pre-Vatican to moral theology, which is in the back of the minds of people, huh? things have to be corrected. And basically, in the history of, of ethics, you have those who focus on the acts, and that's casuistry. You have those who focus on the norms, 
and that's basically Jewish ethics and Islamic ethics. You have a holy law, the Quran, the Talmud, you know, and and you deduce from that. But also within the Catholic Church, you had those who said, um, Karol Wojtyla in his younger days in 1968, he gave a discourse in Lublin about uh, uh, ethics and moral theology. And he said, the task of moral theology is to give the ultimate justification of the moral norms. Well, that's not enough. You have a, a drug addict, an alcoholic, you know. Come here, I'll, I'll give you the ultimate justification of the moral norms. He knows that he's, mm-hmm. what he's doing is wrong. And it's not just the ultimate metaphysical, psychological, biblical arguments and so on. And if you give all the human arguments, and then if they don't uh, uh, function, well, but Jesus says so, but the Bible says so. Well, then you're using the Bible as a filling in the gaps, in the, uh, in the holes, in the thinking, on the, on the rational level. But this is not the issue, huh? So it's neither acts nor just the norms. Aquinas says to focus on on, on virtues, but I say deeper. He's focusing on grace and showing how grace generates virtues and changes the person from within and makes you capable of affronting the challenges that you have in a creative way, which of course means it has an impact on the acts and you have the need of a clarity of the moral order, uh, Mm -hmm. of the moral law, which helps you to perceive the issues. But the central theme is not just the norm or the individual act, but the transformation of a person in such a way that moved by the power of grace. You perceive Mm -hmm. what is the good that is to be done. And, and and there's not one answer for every situation. And in the in the pre-Vatican II post-Tridentile closed rural model of life, it seemed that the priest who had read his moral theology he had an answer to every question. Well, questions are diverse today, and and you won't have the same answer in a, in bioethics in a in a fancy rich clinic here in Chicago mm-hmm. and in a refugee camp in Rwanda. <clears throat> And the same doctor, the same sickness, will find a different solution. And he has the right to find a different solution because he has to find the best solution in that situation where he is. Whereas the idea that there's one answer for everything and the Pope can issue an infallible answer immediately, mm-hmm. you know, give him a microphone, you know, and explain us something. So this re- reduction of the rank of the word of the Pope, I think, is maybe positive, huh? Mm-hmm. That infallibility doesn't mean that everything that the Pope says is infallible. It's only what is ex cathedra officially or doctrinal teaching. Whereas you have to think, you know, everybody has to think, bishops have to think, you know, theologians have to think, you know, and, and come up with answers which are true, focused on the true good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that will certainly make for a, a richer moral environment for yeah. the church to yeah. to delve deeper and to really grow as opposed to demanding certain kinds of approaches to either gestures or teaching from Pope. Uh I probably should have started with this question. Uh, If you could just perhaps tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You have a very interesting life story. And as you described to me, you've Okay, you well, spent th- a third of your life in, in three very different situations. I was born in England of Polish parents, of political emigres. My father had to leave Poland because of communism. My parents married before the war. They had four children before the war. Then he was in German prison camps for six years. And then after the war, he returned to Poland, found my mother, brought the family out. 
And then he lived in London as a political writer, as a historian, writing books on Polish history, which were inaccessible in Poland. They, we tried to smuggle it in, but anyway. At some stage, while well, communism was changing, my brother decided to return. He studied in Oxford, then in Canada, and then he returned as a specialist in forestry genetics, and he married in Poland. And then in 1970, uh, I decided I'll go to Poland to study in Poland. I wanted to study history. Of course, the university was Marxist, the propaganda was imposed, but I had my father's books from London, I had my English education, and it was possible then to come to Poland. So communism was not so severe as in the 1950s. And I wanted to see the real Poland and not the romantic Poland of my parents of pre-war years. I wanted to see, you know, the real. I was raised as a Pole, definitely, even though, of course, at school I had everything in English. Uh, but, uh, but with both cultures, I, want, uh, I affirmed my Polish identity. And I, I was active in the Dominican student chaplaincy in Poznan. And then when I graduated, I acquired Polish citizenship and entered the order in Poland. So I had my formation in Krakow, where Wojtyla was initially the bishop, and then he was elected pope. Then after that, I was sent to Rome for two years to do a license in the Angelicum, and then later I came back for a, a doctorate. In the meantime, I was working in formation as an assistant and then as the student master in Krakow, where we had a large student aid. There's only one Polish province of the order. And as communism fell, we also had some vocations from the Baltics, from Ukraine, from Belarus, and so on. Although most of them didn't survive in the order. And many of those who entered also didn't survive in the order because this was the society, was in, was everything had crashed and the Pope was very popular. And so many people were flocking into the seminaries for the wrong reasons. So they had to be helped to, mm -hmm. to weed them out. And I started teaching moral theology there. Then when I finished uh, my term, and I was also preaching and doing many other things in Poland, when the, uh, I finished as the student master, I was asked to go to the Angelicum to teach. So for four years I was teaching a semester in the Angelicum, a semester in Krakow. And then the master of the order was an Englishman, and he appointed me as the Socius for Central and Eastern Europe. Since many of my former students went east, uh, now that the boundaries broke, and there were over 200 localities within the Soviet Union where there used to be Dominican priories, where there were the remains of the Dominican priory or some people there. Or, but of course, it, it was rarely possible to recuperate the buildings, but at least to recreate Dominican presence there. And so uh, I was a sort of intermediate person between the master of the order, traveling around between Dubrovnik and St. Petersburg, also Hungary, Czechoslovakia, also Germany, that was the mm. Eastern European region, and a member of the General Council. Mm. And then the master changed, there was an Argentinian, Carlos Aspiros Costa, and he changed my office to the Socius for Intellectual Life, that's basically for studies. So I started traveling around the world, visiting Dominican centers of studies, and doing the paperwork between Dominican universities and the Holy See, and also doing visitations of provinces. I traveled a lot around the world, in Africa, in the Philippines, in Latin America, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I gained a vision of the whole. And then, through, basically, of the vision of the Dominican order, but through that I saw something of the Universal Church. And then when I was due to end that, I was hoping to go to Ukraine and to help a little institute of St. Thomas Aquinas that we established in Kiev. 
but then uh, God or Pope Benedict or the two of them combined <laughs> and messed up my plans. I was locked up in the Vatican, and since then I'm in the Vatican, living mm. in, the, in the Vatican as the papal theologian. So these are three parts of my life. I, I'd say one third is in Italy, but not really in Italy, because I've never had that much of a contact with the Italian church. I was teaching, I've been teaching for, for almost a quarter of a century in the Angelicum, but in English, many American seminarians there. And uh, and being in the central uh, government of the order, I was more interested in the world rather than the Italian scene. But anyway, that's that's my life experience. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking with us today. and. We're very honored to have you here, and thanks okay. for coming to the second largest Polish city in the world, in oh, Chicago. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode... Sequence for St. Hilarion is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists in Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.